Okay, we are wrapping up our series in Ephesians. We're coming to chapter 6, and I hope you've had the chance to read it through. And if you haven't, that's your assignment this afternoon. Uh, let's read our Bibles. So read through Ephesians 1 to 6. It doesn't take long, and uh, you'll be blessed by it. In fact, I'd say if you need encouragement today, for whatever reason, read Ephesians. It is one of Paul's most encouraging letters that he's ever written. Uh, so read Ephesians, especially if you're struggling with questions like, who am I and what am I doing here? We do that at different times in our lives, don't we? And Ephesians gives us a grounding, an answer in the gospel as to who we are and what we are doing here. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians, and here's what the gospel says. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. That's our identity. That might not mean too much for us, and we would have to kind of unpack it more and more because it's a very loaded phrase, and uh, we can't take all the time right now to fully unpack it. But one of the things that I've really appreciated in looking through this series is understanding that if we are in Christ, then we are not defined by the sins and failures of our past. We're not defined by the sins and the failures of our past. Instead, we are defined by grace. That's the defining factor of our lives. Paul says a different way in, in other letters that he writes. He talks about being in Adam. When he talks about being in Adam, what he's saying is, is that we were in sin. We were in death. But now we are in Christ. So we're no longer in sin. We're in grace. And we're no longer in death. We have the hope of eternal life. That's a radical change that Paul wants to invite us into as understanding the defining factor of our life is grace. And if we can get that for ourselves, maybe we can extend it to other people. Because I think so often we define other people by their sin. I don't know if we do it intentionally all the time, but we'll say about someone, oh yeah, they're an alcoholic. Or yeah, that person's a liar. Or that person's, you fill in the blank, right? We do it a lot. We, we define people by their sin. We define ourselves by our sin. And the gospel invites us to define ourselves by God's grace and to do the same with others. And that's part of the revolutionary nature of what it means to be found in Christ. Well, not only that, but Ephesians says that we are made for a purpose, we are made for a purpose. And some of us might discover kind of our defining purpose in, life's, in life. Many of us just go through life having to do what we have to do. So much of life is very mundane. Would you agree? Like it's just, you get up in the morning, you got to do certain things throughout the day. And you don't always feel like you're living a purpose-filled life. Um, and yet, Ephesians invites us to find purpose in this simple phrase, do good. Do good. Can you do good today? Do, do good for someone else. Do good according to the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And when we do good, we're fulfilling our purpose in this world. So not only are we in Christ and we're made for a purpose to do good, but Ephesians says we're also designed to experience this life together. We're meant to experience the unity of the body of Christ as each and every one of us use our individual gifts within that body. We're not meant to walk this road alone. We're meant to walk this road 
together. And so that's part of the message of Ephesians. You are loved, you are significant, and you belong. That's good news. This should be the, the best news for the world around us. This should be best news that we tell our neighbors and our family and our friends and our people all around the world, right? That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. You are loved, you are significant, and you belong. That's supposed to be not only a message of the gospel, it's supposed to be the experience of the church, that you are loved, you are significant, and you belong. No matter your ethnic or social or gender identity, that we belong because of the grace of God revealed to us in Christ. This is the trajectory of the gospel. This is where it's leading, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. So if we are in Christ, we have way more in common with one another than we realize. Even if we differ politically, even if we differ according to ideologies, whatever it is, Paul is saying, find your core identity in Christ. Yes, we're still going to have disagreements, and there's a way to argue well. Do you know that? There's a, there's a good way to argue and a bad way to argue. But if we argue from a place of being united first in Christ, that's going to be helpful. So this is what Paul is saying about our identity. If we were to break down the whole of Ephesians, as we were talking about in footnotes class this morning, there's three words that really stand out to us that frame the whole book for us. Sit, walk, and stand. And if you look back over Ephesians, these words will pop out to you. So you don't have to remember a whole lot about Ephesians. Just remember these three words. Sit, sit with Jesus in the heavenly realms, knowing that God's work is completed and that it's fully enough for all of us. Walk with one another in purpose and unity. And today we're going to look at this. Stand. Stand against the attacks of the enemy. The enemy that will seek to divide and discourage and destroy us. So that's what we're coming to today. As we read the passage uh, together, Paul says, finally, like all good preachers, whenever you hear the word finally, you know the sermon is halfway through, right? <laughs> finally, except this time, Paul gets to the point. In a sense, he's saying not just finally, he's actually saying furthermore. This is the one last point I want to make. Bearing in mind all that's come before us, and he says, finally, this is the point I want you to remember. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Let that sink in for a moment, because this is a mistake that we make over and over again. We make it on social media. We make the mistake when we're talking to people individually. We make the mistake when we're yelling at the news that we disagree with. Whatever it is, we assume that our whole battle is against one another. It's against flesh and blood. It's against the, the people that we disagree with. Just pause for a minute and think about that. If I was to ask you the question, and don't shout out the answer because it might be embarrassing, okay? But if I was to ask you the question, who is your greatest enemy? Some of us, a picture of someone comes to mind. Not Doug. Doug's not my enemy. I don't think. So someone might come to mind. Right? That's just the honest human response. If I say, who's your greatest enemy? You think of you know, a co-worker or a boss or uh, maybe, maybe your neighbor that's driving you crazy. 
a picture of someone might, might come to mind, or, or maybe it's a whole group of people. Maybe it's a whole group of people that you feel is, is threatening your existence or your perception of your way of life, and they're coming in, and you've got to stand against them, and, and you see these people as your enemy. Or, or maybe it's an ideology. Maybe it's a particular ideology, a set of beliefs and values that's so different from yours that you see the people that hold those beliefs and values, you see them as the enemy. If I was to ask, who is your enemy? We might have a lot of different answers. Also, if I was to ask, what's the greatest enemy of the church? We might have a lot of different answers to that, but sometimes those answers have to do with individual people. Listen again to what Paul says. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. We, we think it is. And, and because we don't see the bigger battle and we forget about it, we get petty in the battles that we decide to face here. Sometimes that we fight with one another because we don't realize that there's a bigger battle to be fought. And it's a battle that we're being called to fight together, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Who does Paul say our number one enemy is? He says our number one enemy is the devil. That might come as a surprise to some of us. He even spells it out a little more specifically. He says it's against the evil rulers, authorities in the unseen world, the mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel nervous, anxious? Or maybe you've just written it off because that thing existed maybe once upon a time, but we ignore it today. And I think sometimes when we talk about the devil, when we talk about the principalities and powers and a whole realm, the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare, we make one of two mistakes. One is we become fixated on it and we see a demon in every corner right? There's uh, uh, people that we know that maybe have that fear that every time they turn around, there's, there's a devil behind every action. I remember my brother went through uh, a time, uh, he was in a particular movement of the church, and uh, they were constantly, you know, casting demons out of one another. They would have these big sessions where they would lie on their backs, and they would, they would laugh or cough or do a, a number of amazing things, and all the demons would come out. And uh, finally, he realized that he really can't have that many demons. And so <laughs> he kind of moved on from that, thankfully. But so there's a fixation. That's unhealthy. But the opposite is what we tend to do in our Baptist churches. We ignore it. We, we just forget about it. In our scientific world, and our scientific minds, we've rationalized it, which is interesting because if we believe in God, if, if we believe in an unseen authority creator of all the universe... Is there not room for anti-God? Is there not room for something other than God? And so we find that in Scripture consistently that there's a personal evil present in the world. And that's what we find uh, Paul is warning us about. Not to make us afraid, but to make us aware so that we can fight the true battle that's going on. And so this is what we find is that evil is real. It's strategic and it wants to deceive, divide, and destroy the church. Paul uses a really interesting uh, word when he talks about our battle against uh, uh, these evil forces around us. He uses the word for wrestling. It's a wrestling word. And Paul would have observed the gymnasium of the Greeks and Romans, and he, he uses the word for grappling, for wrestling. 
And he used it intentionally because if you're wrestling, and some of you know what that is like, um, if you're wrestling, you cannot help but be up close and personal, right? You can't wrestle from a distance. It doesn't work that way. You know, you can do all kinds of other battles from a distance. But partly what Paul is saying is that this evil presence is up close and personal. We are grappling with it. It's a very personal thing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we find more about sort of this evil realm that's around us. And there's a description that talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And some of you may be familiar with that. The flesh is kind of the evil that's within us, our sin, the stuff that we're held responsible for and that we're accountable for, uh, the evil that we perpetuate in the world by our actions or lack of action, right? That's uh, the flesh. But then there's the world, which is the evil systems that are often around us. There is systemic evil in the world. There's systemic greed and there is systemic oppression that we need to fight against and we find it in the world around us. But then there is an evil that is beyond us, the devil. So the evil within us, the evil around us, I think we're comfortable with that. But then there is, according to scripture, an evil beyond us. And that evil has a name called the devil. So what should we do? How do we stand firm against the the attacks of this enemy, this particular enemy that we often ignore and maybe even want to block out of our mind? Well, there's lots of help in the New Testament. Peter talks about it. He says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The people in Guatemala, the people in Calgary, the people where you might have family, wherever in the world, we're facing the same opposition. And so Peter says, be alert and sober-minded, resist the devil, stand firm in the faith. James says the same thing. In James chapter 4, he says, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's a reality there. Even though it might be beyond our understanding or beyond our comprehension, there is this reality. And as we turn to Paul in Ephesians, he gets a lot more specific about what we can do to fight our greatest enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, he says this, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. The armor of God. I was looking forward to getting it. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's so descriptive. It's so image-rich. We can imagine it. We've probably heard about it if we've been around the church for any length of time. Where did Paul get this image of the armor of God? Well, one place he might have gotten it is from observing Roman soldiers. Paul, often when he was in prison, he would have been chained to a Roman guard. Uh, Not that he was one to run anywhere, but that's what he had been chained to, and he would have observed the Roman guard. So maybe, perhaps, as we discovered in footnotes, some of this idea of the armor of God came from what he observed in the Roman soldiers. Remember in grade seven, uh, my favorite teacher of all time, Mr. Cooksley, He was a very visual learner, which I am also. I like those kind of things. And a hands-on kind of uh, teacher. 
And so he loved the Greek and Roman ancient world. And so if we had to learn about the Parthenon, we built a Parthenon, right? If we had to learn about the Olympic Games, we went out to the field and we threw spears, literally. All sorts of like, we, it was that kind of thing. So I was so excited when my project was to do uh, the Roman armor. And I went home to my dad, my poor dad, and I said, Dad, we have to build this, 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 and this. And he's like, oh man, uh, I got work to do. So we fashioned a, a sword, a little short sword, and we, we fashioned this, this long sort of rectangular shield. And then I grabbed my hockey helmet and we grabbed a broom. You know where I'm going with this? We took it off and we mounted it on top of my helmet. So it was, you know, like this. And uh, honest, it was pretty clever. I, we wove together. My mom helped with all these little links of paper and made the chain mail. Man, I'm, I'm excited just thinking about it. That was back in grade seven. And, uh, and I got there and I told all about the, the Roman armor and I, I got an A on the project. It was great. It, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's funny though, um, in, in uh, my master's degree at Regent College, I was with J.I. Packer and I was studying Puritans and Cistercians. And I decided that I'd try the same trick. So I got my wife and her mom to actually dress me up, not as a Roman soldier, but as a Puritan. J.I. Packer was not as impressed as Mr. Cookley was with my Roman soldier. Anyway, so we can picture it, right? We can picture these pieces of armor, even as Paul is, is declaring them. Um, it's funny because uh, in Christian bookstores, you used to be able to find, well, you used to be able to find a Christian bookstore, but when you found one, they would often sell uh, Armor of God kits for kids, right? And they would have all the different labels on them and kids would put them on and the labels would fall off, but they'd still beat each other with a sword. I'm not sure that's what we were meant to do with all of that. The armor of God. But here's what I want to point out. In our fight against evil, against the devil, I just want to point out how ordinary each piece of armor is that Paul talks about. Here's what I mean. He's not advocating that we fight against evil with particular exorcisms or incantations or mystical powers. <laughs> it's not for an elite group of people to be fighting against the devil or fight against evil forces. This isn't supernatural or angel, as entertaining as those shows might be, which is fine. This is something actually very ordinary. Let me say the armor in a different way. We fight our enemy by speaking the truth by living with integrity, by pursuing peace, by trusting in God, by resting in the work of Jesus, by knowing God's word, and by praying in the spirit. It's very ordinary. It's accessible to each and every one of us. This isn't something for elite Christians or next level Christians. This is something that is part of our everyday life as we live this way, speaking the truth, living with integrity, pursuing peace, trusting in God, resting in Jesus, knowing God's word, and praying in the Spirit, this is how we confront evil, whether it's the evil within us, the evil around us, or the evil beyond us. This is the plan that we are given. But here's where I want to put a little bit of twist, because even in our footnotes class, we watched the video, and, uh, and the, the, uh, the speaker there in the video talked about the armor of God being modeled after a Roman soldier. And I actually think Paul is going deeper than that, given his background. Paul is actually giving us images 
that are already in place under the old covenant, covenant that we find in the book of Isaiah. Let me just read a few verses, four different verses from Isaiah, and you'll see what I mean. Isaiah chapter 11, he will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Interesting, right? Isaiah 49, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. I think this is what Paul is referring to. Who is Isaiah speaking about? Isaiah is describing God's divine warrior who is the Messiah. We know him as Jesus. Isaiah and Paul, in describing the armor of God, is actually talking about Jesus. And so what is Paul saying? How do we stand firm against the evil in our world and the evil that is beyond us? By putting on Christ. By being found in Christ. That's Paul's great theme. Even when he's talking about marriage, he's still talking about Christ and the church. Even when he's talking about fighting evil, he's still talking about you and I remaining in Christ. Why? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. That's a phrase we know, right? This is what Paul is saying. In our own strength, we cannot defeat our greatest enemy. But Jesus, it says in Colossians chapter 2, canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, listen carefully, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly. He, he made a spectacle of them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The battle is already won. We don't need to be afraid. We need to be aware, but we don't need to be afraid. So how do we stand against the principalities and the powers in the heavenly realms? By remaining in Christ. That's the theme of Ephesians. Remain in Christ. And so when the enemy comes to you personally and says, you're no good. You see what you did there? You messed up again. You ever have that happen? Sometimes after the sermon last week, I went home and I was like, I'm never preaching again. And then I got to, I got to staff meeting and somebody at staff meeting told me, wow, that sermon was really meaningful. I'm like, what? That was a total disaster. And so you know how the devil works on you like that, right? You do something, you give it your best, and then and the devil comes along and says, you're, you're no good. You're no good. Or how about this? Nobody loves you. You're unlovable. Just, just think of how disgusting you are. That's not of God. That's of the devil. Or, or you're just a constant failure. Or, or you don't belong here. Whenever you hear those kind of words, run to Jesus and find your security in him. Why? Because in Jesus, you are loved, you are significant, and you belong. That's our identity in Christ, and this is the message of Ephesians. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. But in fact, through your Son, as, as far as the East is from the West, you've taken our sins and separated them from us. Father, help us to treat other people in the same way that you have treated us with grace, with love, with acceptance, 
knowing that you have first loved us. May we be your hands and feet in this world, and may people come to know you because they see you reflected in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.